0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. Today, Pastor Tom brings us the first message in our summer sermon series titled, I Am. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life, great that we're able to gather, great that we're able to be here. Um, So we've talked about it a lot already during service, but we have our small groups are about to get started this upcoming week. There is definitely a group for you. So I hope you're able to get on the website, figure out a group that works with your schedule and hopefully a place that works for you and all that kind of stuff. But there is definitely a group for you, and I hope you're able to be a part of that. And most of the groups uh, this summer, what we're going to do is spend the time in group talking through the summer series. And so the summer series is called I Am. And so I I am is not talking about who we are, but rather who he is. So talking about Jesus in the Gospel of John, there are seven times where Jesus says, I am something. And then we're going to spend the rest of the summer looking at those different somethings that Jesus talks about. And so for the series, I would say if you're able to be in church, there is no better place to be on a Sunday morning. Can I get an amen? Amen. And if you're not able to be here, I understand. People have plans on the weekend. There are vacations coming up. There's all kinds of things that pull our attention over the summer. Of course, I understand this. Um, So I would say definitely catch up online because I really believe this series is going to be real helpful and it's going to be some good stuff that we're able to dig into. So if you're not able to be here in person or online, definitely take the time to catch up. But the seven sayings that Jesus uh, says in the Gospel of John where he says, I am something, is that Jesus talks about, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and finally, I am the vine. And we're going to look at those one by one each week that we do this. But what's helpful as we get started into this series is not necessarily to memorize that list of seven. If you could memorize it just from me rattling it off like that, I'd be crazy impressed. But it's not so much being able to memorize those seven, but rather I wanted to take this introductory week to look at the significance of the words, I am. I am, just those two very simple in the English words, I am, and it's loaded and it's packed with meaning. Uh, A strange, possibly oversimplified equivalent that came to me as I was getting ready for today is that as Americans, if I say one word, it floods meaning to our minds. That word, thanksgiving. If I say Thanksgiving, instantly all of us are on the same page. We understand the word Thanksgiving talks about turkey, it talks about pumpkin pie, it talks about football being on the TV, it talks about family dinner, it talks about sharing the story of the pilgrims, it talks about each of us taking turns saying what we're thankful for. All those things come back to us. It brings back memories of watching trains, planes, and automobiles. All those things from one word, Thanksgiving. It has all kinds of meaning attached to it. And the same is very true of this expression that Jesus used to talk about himself, I am. And we're gonna look at that today before we get into the rest of the series and look at the seven times that Jesus uses this to help bring teaching and bring understanding. We're gonna look firstly, primarily, as we get started, the significance of that expression, I am. And it was just this past week, my son Moses, he's eight years old, deeply curious, and he says to me, Dad, how big is God? And he was not satisfied with the answer I gave him. Part of the reason is is that I had to try and explain to my son, who's awesome and is deeply inquisitive, as many eight-year-olds are, I had to say, there's really no effective way to measure how big God is. He's, He's beyond what any means we would use to measure him. It's kind of like if someone were to say, how far away is New York City? And I responded, 43 pounds. Or someone were to say, "Is what's the temperature going to be today?" And I replied, four miles." It, it's clearly ridiculous because that's not how you measure those things. You know, how long have I been married? Seventy-six decibels. What? That, that that's not how you measure time. It, it makes no sense. How much water should I drink every day? Nine hours. Like, it it makes absolutely no sense because that's not how we measure those things. And that was the best way I could try, and I will say fail, to explain to my son, how big is God? We don't have an accurate or an appropriate way to measure God. There is nothing that can contain Him. There's nothing that is helpful. There is no standard that we can hold Him to that is helpful in helping us understand how big God is. Moses' question, how big is God? It's impossible to answer because God is not defined or limited by anything that we could use to measure him. And I feel like this has kind of been an ongoing theme. I feel like it's come up quite a lot lately, and I hope it's indicative of it, something that it's helpful for us to be reminded of. But I feel I've been saying a lot lately, and it's come up multiple times in messages, that one of the things that we as followers of Jesus and as people who've placed our faith and trust in God, we need to be okay with, and we need to learn to be okay with, is our inability to comprehend God. He's too big. He's too great for us to wrap our minds around. And that's something that we need to be okay with that he is beyond our comprehension. He is beyond our level of understanding. Being unable to wrap our minds around that, that's okay, it's expected. And I read this week as I was preparing that God is both hidden and revealed. He is beyond us and yet near us. He's known yet unknowable. And the best way that I could kind of put this in a frame of reference that helped me bring some understanding just of that thought alone was I think about Megan. So Megan is my wife We've been married 14 years. Out of the 8 billion people on the planet, Megan is my favorite. She's the person that I'm closest to. It's unusual that a day goes by that we don't spend time together. I would say that I'm as close to her as anyone I could ever imagine being close to. She's my wife. Love her loads. What often surprises people as they get to know Megan is that she grew up in Alaska. So when people say Alaska, and that sort of always piques people's interest, like, oh, Alaska. And oftentimes, someone knows somebody that's going on a cruise there or something, but it's a topic of conversation. It's like, oh, Alaska, no way. Here's the thing. I've never been to Alaska. And so my wife, who I would say is the person that I know best on the planet, out of eight billion people, she's my favorite, there's still a portion of her life, a part of her life, that I have no idea about. Now that doesn't mean I'm not close to her. It doesn't mean that there is not love between us, but it is this reality that there is a part of her life that I have no idea about. She may have shown me pictures on Google Earth, which she has, and it looks awesome where she grew up in Juneau. She may have told me stories of what it was like in Alaska, but I've never been there. I've never walked in Alaska, I've never breathed in that air, I've never stood at the foot of a glacier and looked up, and yet that is a part of my wife's life, now that is a possibly oversimplified illustration of we can be close to God and yet still he be completely beyond our comprehension. We've never been to Alaska, whereas my wife, the person I'm closest to, that's where she grew up. God is far beyond our comprehension. God is the perfect example of the old adage, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Uh, Hopefully, by considering all of this, reminding ourselves of this, the importance of our faith, the central role that our faith and our pursuit of Jesus has in our life, that our faith as we remind ourselves how incomprehensible He is, how beyond our expectation He is, how beyond our understanding He is, our faith and our trust in Him will grow. As we reflect together on how incredible God is, it'll change and stretch the intensity in which we follow God, seek Him, and orientate our entire lives around Him and His promises. Now, when Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, when he walked the earth, he had people, group of people, many people that truly hated him. The most obvious and the most frequent adversaries that Jesus came up against were the religious leaders of his time. And religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were specifically the Jewish leaders and teachers that the people generally looked up to. And the climate of the first century around Judea, including Jerusalem, was, to put it mildly, tense. The Romans had conquered that region and they were overseeing the people often harshly. A strong belief had crept into the religious Jewish thinking that strict, strict obedience to the scriptures was of paramount importance to ensure God would rescue them. The whole idea was rooted in fear that we need to obey God to the finest detail of the scriptures, so much so that we're going to add layers to this. We're going to add burdens to this. We're going to make this even harder because they're rooted in fear and they were terrified that if they put one foot wrong, they'll be done with God's blessing, done with his promises. It wasn't enough for people to just concern themselves with how they lived and how they pursued their faith. The religious leaders would put unbearable demands on people, people who are already existing in extreme poverty, people who are beaten down by life, and their religious leaders, the people they looked up to, they were ready to pounce as soon as they put a foot wrong and they were ready to proclaim God's judgment was coming upon them. Consequently, Jesus had a lot of problems with these people. They were preaching and teaching fear, largely in hopes of controlling people so they could be be sure of attracting God's blessing. All of this rooted in the fear of putting one foot wrong and God will be done with his promises in our life. It appears that they've lost any sense any confidence, any belief, any understanding that God is motivated and consumed with love. Jesus has repeated confrontations with these religious leaders. It was the religious leaders who manipulated and conspired to have the Romans crucify Jesus. And prior to his crucifixion, there's many, many instances of the religious leaders arguing with Jesus, even trying to embarrass him or corner him into saying something that would be considered a scandal, and eventually lying about him to try and weaken his influence and manipulate to get him on the cross. There were all sorts of problems, of by the religious leaders of his day. And so what we're going to read today in John 8 is one of the many interactions that Jesus had with these religious leaders that hated Jesus, hated what he was doing, and that all that hatred was deeply rooted in fear. So we're going to be in John 8, starting in verse 31. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They replied, but we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham. And yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I am telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did any such thing. And you'll notice that. The people that Jesus is combating with and going back and forth with, they're trying to validate themselves by appealing to Abraham. Now we're gonna come back to this a little bit later on. And this goes back and forth for a few more paragraphs. Jesus tells them that Abraham isn't their father, but rather the devil is. The religious leaders won't stand from this troublemaker from Nazareth making all these insulting arguments in the temple, so they call him a demonic Samaritan. This exchange continues with Jesus bringing deep truths to the confrontation. And we're gonna skip down to verse 51. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died, but you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count, but it is my father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, as Jesus says, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. So Jesus just got done. This exchange, this back and forth, trying to teach them something, but it's combative because people are arguing with him. He's trying to communicate that you need to remain faithful to my teaching, that you can have life in me, that the truth will set you free. Jesus teaches that sin causes us to live like slaves, but he has come to bring true freedom. And through this back and forth, with Abraham keeps getting referred to. And we'll spend some time looking at that significance shortly. Jesus also says that the only glory that matters to him is that the glory that the Father will give to him. And he's confident that the Father will glorify the Son as much as is necessary. And the people that Jesus is debating with, they suggest that Jesus is possessed by an evil spirit. And this shows how spiritually blind they are. And this theme comes up repeatedly. Jesus is saying favorable things about Abraham, certainly nothing that they would have objected to. And it's clear from what we just read that it's what Jesus says about himself that has prompted this response. They're not angry about what he said about Abraham. They're angry about what Jesus says and what he teaches about himself. When they reply, you're not even 50, they're trying to show how absurd it would be for Jesus and Abraham, who'd been dead for over a thousand years at this point, to be contemporaries. But they're missing the point Jesus is telling them that he is infinitely greater than Abraham. It's Jesus revealing who he is that has stirred such a strong reaction. But it's not the comparisons to Abraham that caused the reaction. It's not the comparisons to Abraham that caused them to pick up the stones. It's the phrase, I am. At this point, the opponents of Jesus hurry to pick up stones. Their rage is shocking. The determination for killing him because he says, I am. I am. And the story here in John eight, Jesus is having the contentious back and forth with people. And what flipped this from an angry conversation, even an argument or a strong debate, to people wanting to violently stone him to death in the temple then and there were the words, I am. I think it's right, it's appropriate for this to be shocking to us. People violently reacting to this. It's clearly something worth thinking about. It's clearly something for us to dig into. And there's gonna be something hopefully that will be helpful. But there are two questions that kind of helped me sort of as I was digging into this this week and trying to consider what to bring to the church that I hope be helpful. And two questions about Jesus declaring himself, I am. First thing is, what did Jesus mean by this? And the second thing is, why did people uh, react violently? What did Jesus mean? What was he saying? What was he getting at? What was the point of him saying this? Why even say this if it's going to cause such a reaction? And the second thing, why is it that somebody would react violently to this? The interaction they'd been hostile prior to Jesus saying this, but it was those words that tipped this from being an argument, strong debate, contentious, discussion to being actual violence. And a couple of things to look at: the relevance of Abraham, and then we're also going to consider the actual origin of this phrase, "I am." In the argument we read between Jesus and the religious leaders, the common thread that holds everything together is the subject of Abraham and what it means to be his true descendant. Now, Abraham is a notable figure in the biblical story because he received a promise. So we're going to go back to one of the first times we come across Abraham and the promise he received in Genesis 12. This is a very significant moment in the biblical story. Genesis 12, starting verse 2, this is God speaking to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is the first of a number of times that God made incredible promises to Abraham. This is the reason, this moment right here is the reason Abraham became known as the father of the faith. From this point, Genesis, if you read Genesis from start to finish, it's at this moment where there's a notable shifting gear in how the story's played out. Prior to this moment, prior to God coming and making these promises to Abraham, Genesis 1 through 11, it really has like a 30,000 foot view. It's a like broad strokes, covers a long period of time, relatively short, you know, short period of you know, words on the page. Then suddenly, Genesis 12, Abraham. God comes, makes promises, and the whole story becomes localized around Abraham and his family. Fast forward 400 years after Abraham and his descendants, they have truly become a nation that are slaves in Egypt. But they are still defined by the promises made to Abraham. Abraham and his descendants. That's the rest of the story if we read the book of Genesis. And after 400 years, they have truly, as God promised, become a nation. But they are a nation that is in slavery and Egypt. A further than a thousand years or so after that is when we have Jesus having this confrontation with the people that wanted to stone him to death for this interaction largely involving Abraham. It's worth noticing that it was the religious leaders who brought Abraham into the argument, not Jesus. And why would they have such strong feelings about Abraham? Well, for me, I I think it would be typical for most American 21st century Western Christians is Abraham is a Bible hero. And like most Bible heroes, he's deeply flawed. He's certainly not a perfect person, but he's the person that God chose to bring his plans and purposes about. But for the first century Jewish people that Jesus grew up with, it was significantly more than that. Firstly, Abraham, for the people Jesus is arguing with, and for the rest of the Jewish people that Jesus interacted with and lived with, he was their literal descendant, or literal ancestor. He was their literal ancestor. And secondly, Abraham represented the promises of God. By latching onto their relationship with Abraham, it connected them and made them interwoven with the promises of God, promises for blessing and freedom and hope. And Jesus responds by saying, I'm greater than Abraham, meaning that there's even greater blessing and greater freedom and greater hope that's found in me. Jesus' mission was to fulfill the promises that God had made to his people through Abraham and Moses and others. Promises of blessing and protection, Promises of prosperity and hope, Jesus fulfilled those promises and more. When Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, it's addressing that he has come to fulfill the promises, not abandon them or forget them. When Paul says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, it's confirming that every promise you and I can find in the Old Testament, whether it's a promise made to Abraham or someone else, they are all being kept and answered in Jesus. When Jesus initiates communion, he talks about a new covenant that he is making, new promises, promises greater than the old promises. The book of Hebrews elaborates in great detail that Jesus is incredibly superior to the old system of experiencing God's promises. In Jesus, we have greater promises. In Jesus, we have unearned blessings, eternal life, peace with God, the promise of the Holy Spirit to fill and guide us. That Jesus sacrifice on the cross was enough. Was Abraham great? If one person claps, we all have to. Was Abraham great? Yes, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. A ridiculous illustration that I'm embarrassed to share with you, but we've come this far, so why not? Ridiculous illustration. If you go to a restaurant and you have a 10% off coupon, so it's a real fancy upper-class place, you got a 10% off coupon. That is Abraham's promises. you got something good coming your way, something that you've got, a promise that you're going to get a discount. Or you're going to have the entire meal for free. I know this is a ridiculous illustration. Don't feel the need to email me about it. (laughs) This is sitting in the restaurant with someone trying to tell you the entire meal has been paid for. And you fighting back saying, no, I've got a 10% off coupon. <laughs> I'm not making eye contact with Megan right now. That's... <laughs> it good. It's incomplete. But hopefully it starts to paint the picture of the point. Abraham, yes, he's great. Yes, the promises that God made him are world-changing. But in Jesus, those promises are fulfilled and infinitely, indescribably more. That is who this is. Yes, there's a 10% off coupon. Let me just make a note here. Never use that illustration again. All right. The promises that Jesus fulfilled were so much greater than Abraham that as part of this argument, Jesus says, Your father Abraham, he rejoiced. As he looked forward to my coming, as this argument, as they're trying to lean on Abraham as being the validation from what they're saying, Jesus responds with, Abraham knew I was coming. He saw it and was glad. And Jesus is making this fascinating point that Abraham, the person that they're pointing to as the validation and connection to the promises of God, saying, even Abraham knows that I'm better and I'm greater than him. And he rejoiced that I would be here to do what I'm doing now. John 8 58, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Before the father of the faith, I am. Now, this is not ambiguous. It tells us without any doubt what Jesus believes about himself. Not only in reference to Abraham, which is a massive claim to say that he's greater than Abraham is an enormous claim to make, but he goes significantly further by saying, I am. And as we get into this series, we're, of course, going to look at the different ways Jesus expresses this throughout John's gospel, the seven different ways that we've talked about. But as we start, keep in mind that this prompted people to pick up stones ready to murder him. That Jesus would dare say this, that he would dare say, I am, it prompted a reaction that people were willing to commit murder. So let's go back to Genesis 3 to see the origin of that simple expression of I am. Uh, The book of Exodus it's a little more than 400 years after God had come in Genesis 12 to make incredible promises to Abraham. And in that time, Abraham's descendants, they'd indeed multiply into the nation, the nation of Israel, and they'd become slaves in Egypt where they lived in brutal conditions for many generations. And it's at this point that Moses was born. And it was during this time of slavery, and it was a point where the Pharaoh of Egypt had decreed that all the Israelite newborns, especially the newborn boys, had to be killed. And there's a very well-known story, many movies made about it. If you're not familiar with the Bible story, just because of the Bible, you may have seen this on TV, different movies, all the rest. But Moses is a baby. His parents hid him because there was an order out to all the newborn boys had to be killed. So they hid him in a basket, placed him in the Nile. Moses drifted down the river and headed towards the palace where he was found by the Pharaoh's daughter, saw the baby, decided to bring him into the palace and raise him as her son. So Moses grew up in Egypt, in the palace, despite his Hebrew and his Israelite nationality. And as he was older, Moses was walking around, and he was looking and seeing what was going on, and he went out, and he looked, and he saw the mistreatment happening to the Hebrew people. And Moses took matters into his own hands and ended up murdering an Egyptian. This prompted his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, to turn on him. In fear, Moses, one of the great heroes of the Bible, so awesome it's worth naming your second son after him, he ran away terrified of what was going to happen he ran away he flees and for 40 years he spends time in the back end of nowhere as a shepherd and it's at that moment after 40 years of hiding that God comes to Moses in the very famous moment of the burning bush God comes to Moses tells him that he God is going to be shown faithful to his promises that he made to Abraham over 400 years earlier Moses is going to be the one to lead the Israelites out of slavery and into freedom, true freedom. Moses has his doubts about his part in all this. But God is certain that Moses is indeed the one to lead his people. Moses objects further, and this is where we're going to pick this up. Exodus 3, verse 13. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask you, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now, Moses assumes that when he returns to Egypt, the place that he left in disgrace, the place he left in fear, that the people are going to have questions. Moses doesn't feel, probably rightly so, that he can just walk in and say, congratulations, everyone, I'm here. I'm ready to set you free. I'm ready to lead you out of slavery and into freedom. They're not just going to take his word for it, and they're going to want to know more about you, the one sending me. And it's to that that God says, I am who I am. This is my name. You want to know my name? I am who I am. The character and qualities and nature of God is who he is and who he will continue to be. Contrast this with you and I. People, we're inconsistent. We fluctuate depending on what's going on around us, but not God. I am who I am. I read a number of really helpful uh, chapters from different books this week, and there's a paragraph I thought would be really great to share with you today. The most common translation is, I am who I am. Other translations include, I will be what, who, I will be. I will cause to be what I will cause to be. I will be who I am, I am who I will be. The last note, it seems to be the best option. In essence, I will be God for you. The force is not simply that God is, or that God is present, but that God will be faithfully God for them. God will be God with and for the people at all times and places. The formulation suggests a divine faithfulness to self. Wherever God is being God, God will be the kind of God God is. Israel need not be concerned about divine arbitrariness or capriciousness. God can be counted on to be who God is. God will be faithful. Israel's own experience with God and its history will confirm the meaning of this name. Israel both understands its history from the name and the name from its history. The name shapes Israel's story, and the story gives greater texture to the name. At the same time, there are stakes in this for God. God has to live up to the name. Now in this name, I am, the God reveals to Moses. We learn a few things about his nature and his character. I am who I am. The God is self-existent and independent. God is the creator and sustainer of everything. He was not created. He existed outside of creation. God is unchangeable and always reliable. God is eternal in his existence. He is uniquely faithful and powerful, and he does it all purely on his own authority. Moses asks for a name. What he gets is a theology. Another passage I read, this is helpful. This is from an English author, so you know it's good. God is telling Moses that he is fully and truly all that he will ever be. God is who God reveals himself to be, not what human beings have constructed him to be. And God will be who he is forever. It, is, it also expresses a sense of expectation. The future will reveal the identity and character of God as events unfold. God is all that he will be seen to be through what God promises and accomplishes in the days ahead. So in naming himself this, this way, God is calling for trust and hope. And this, this is what Jesus points to, to help people understand who he is. He describes himself unequivocally as I am. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying, and the people listening knew exactly what he meant. What did Jesus mean by this? It's one of the questions that I've been rolling through this week. So Jesus was very bluntly pointing to that moment where God revealed powerful things about himself, that moment at the burning bush with Moses, that I am who I am, and Jesus is saying, that's me. Active in the past, present, and future. All-powerful creator and giver of life. Eternally reliable and faithful. Existing before there was any hint of creation. For Jesus to point to himself as... I am, it's a loaded description that's packed with meaning. I can say one word, thanksgiving, and it brings all sorts of things to our mind. In a similar, far greater way, the words I am is loaded terminology. And for Jesus to say, that's me, is no small thing. Jesus is bringing all of that understanding that Moses experienced at the burning bush. All that the nation of Israel would learn about who God is. He continued to reveal himself that we can read about through the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is saying, all of that, that's me, and it always has been, it always will be. So why would the religious leaders care so much? For Jesus to use all this to describe himself, not only that he's better than Abraham, but he is I am, he's making sure that everyone knows that he is God. Not God's messenger, not a prophet, not a priest, not a man with a unique relationship with God, but God has become human, and he's standing in front of them. It's not surprising that this has caused a strong reaction. But it's important that we understand that this is very bluntly what Jesus is teaching, that he is God, that the Son and Father are equally God. The religious leaders didn't want to stone him for saying he was superior to Abraham. But as soon as he says, I am, they start looking for stones. This didn't fit their expectations of how God will fulfill his promises. And this is why the response from Jesus sent his agitators through the roof. And it points us, back to John 1 and this is where John sets the tone for his whole book this is how John opens up his gospel John 1 1 in the beginning the word already existed the word was with God and the word was God he existed in the beginning with God God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it if you would go down to verse 14, it says, So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. All of humanity, every single one of us, everyone everywhere, share the problem of sin. And it's sin that separates us from God. It's sin that causes a break in relationship with Him. So God the Father, motivated by love, sent God the Son to become humanity. The Word became flesh. The Word became humanity. He was born. He took on the full nature of being a man and all that that involves. He experienced hunger. He was tired. But unlike us, he lived a sinless life, completely perfect. He taught and role-modeled a better way to live. And when he went to the cross... He became the perfect sacrifice on behalf of all humanity so our sins could be justly forgiven and our broken relationship with God could be healed. God became humanity to pay the price that humanity could never ever pay for ourselves. God loves you and I so much that He did everything to restore this lost relationship. For us, our response is to place our faith and trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross to joyfully accept him as Lord of our lives, to embrace being able to freely move on from the devastation caused by sin and separation from God. One of the great final moments in John's Gospel is when Thomas, one of the disciples who was having all kinds of doubts and was doubting that Jesus had risen from the dead, one of the great moments is when he overcomes his doubts and finally believes and he exclaims to Jesus that he's seeing the resurrected Jesus is in front of him, my Lord and my God. What's not said as often as it should, the New Testament records a number of religious leaders, the people that opposed Jesus, the people that fought tirelessly to undo the good things Jesus was doing. They went on to become believers. They went on to have their faith and their trust in Jesus. They went on to recognize that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now to all the parents in here, if you're anything like me, if you give your kid a warning, such as if you put that there, it's gonna fall, and then it falls. Or if you say, if you eat that, you're gonna feel like you're gonna throw up, and they eat it anyway, because how much cotton candy can one kid eat? Or if you say, if you spend your money on that, you're gonna be upset that you don't have money for something else later. And then when it inevitably happens, that smug, content, told you so. That's not how God is when people admit that they're wrong when Thomas says I never should have doubted now I know now I've seen you my Lord my God when the religious leaders who I think it's fair to say would have been in the crowd trying to undo the work of Jesus but trying to discredit Jesus who would have been cheering as Jesus was put on the cross when those people Say, what have I done? No, you are the Lord. You are God. You are the Son of God that can set me free. You are the one that can, you paid the price. So this relationship with God can be healed. You're the one that has fulfilled all that we see in the Old Testament. And you're still making and keeping promises today. It's you. The response from God is not that messed up, childish, broken reaction I often have. I've of, told you so. It's a father rejoicing that sons and daughters are finally coming home. That's the response of our Heavenly Father when people put their trust and their faith in the Son. Why did people react violently? The second question that was driving my study this week. The religious leaders did not misunderstand Jesus It's important that we get this, they didn't misunderstand what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was saying, and he knew exactly what he was saying. He was boldly proclaiming, I am. And that meant that Jesus confronted their deepest fears and expectations. Jesus saying this forces a response. If he's lying, if Jesus were lying, he should be shunned as evil and repulsive. He's openly breaking the Jewish law it's disgracing Yahweh and even worse he's gathering a following and leading people into this blasphemous idolatry if he's lying we of course don't stone people to death anymore and I'm certainly not suggesting we bring it back but according to the Old Testament if he's lying he should be stoned and by their standards he would deserve every single one of those stones To mislead people by telling them that you are equal to God and that life and eternal salvation can be found in you. If it's untrue and you're lying and misleading people, it's deeply evil. To declare yourself, I am when you are not, is damaging to the people listening to you. To manipulate and deceive people into idolatry and blasphemy and cause them to abandon God and destroy their religious convictions based on a lie would be evil but a simple reading of the Gospels. Reading the words of people who will tell us that they are eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. It's plain to see that Jesus was not evil, but the complete opposite. He remains the only human to ever be completely without sin. His whole earthly ministry was filled with loving people that society rejected. His whole life was filled with teaching people to forgive and care for the least of these. Resisting prestige and accolades but having time for the individual, having a deep concern for the poor and the needy, all of this confirms that Jesus could never sensibly be described as evil. And if Jesus is not lying or deceiving people, but rather he's telling the truth, this is the greatest news the world will ever hear. There's a well-known thought from C.S. Lewis, I wanna read you the passage where this came from in his book, Mere Christianity. Another English guy, so deeply trustworthy. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. An interesting reality from this passage in John 8, and this portion that was phrased very well by C.S. Lewis, that Jesus is either the eternal God who became human to reconcile humanity to the Father, or he is deeply evil, possibly a lunatic. And truthfully, there is no sensible reason to assume Jesus was a lunatic. Jesus cannot be described as just a good man or a good moral teacher. His opponents understood the significance of who Jesus claimed to be, and they didn't believe him. A part of the significance of Jesus' message is that it demands a strong response. If we trust the promises made to Abraham found in the Old Testament, Jesus either deserves the stones or eternal worship. A great verse from Isaiah kept coming up as I was preparing for today. Wonderful verse in Isaiah 41 verse 4. Who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time? It is I, the Lord, the first and the last. I alone am He. And this is why the message of Jesus continues to be life-changing. A casual perception of Jesus isn't life-changing. Viewing Jesus as a good guy who said some nice stuff isn't life-changing. Megan and I were talking, I believe it was a week or so ago, about a young lady we worked with in Australia. Meg and I worked for a coffee shop. It's how we paid our way through Bible college. And there was a young lady that we worked with, and she uh, was part of a uh, a program, uh, you know, that was sort of helping to get life figured out. There's a number of different reasons that would cause somebody to go into this program there's not a one-size-fits-all there's all manner of things that go on and she'd been in there about six months and as part of the steps of getting her to have her own independence and put one foot in front of the other and start to rebuild her life she was still in the program but was able to come and work with us in the coffee shop and she worked at the coffee shop she was bubbly she loved life she'd become a part of our church she had a great outlook people loved her she's a very warm person very gregarious she was great to work with it was awesome I knew she was part of this program, and one day, just as part of conversation, I just sort of happened to ask, you know, you know I mean, what ended you up in there? Like, how did this sort of happen that you ended up in this program? To which she said to me, well, you know, I'm kind of halfway through being done. I'm, you know, not quite finished yet, so they actually ask that we don't tell you. It's just, you know, there's a right time for us to share our story and share our testimony, but it's not now. I was like, okay, fair enough. I'm not gonna start praying. A few months went by, and she was ready to graduate from this program. To graduate from the program, there was a a big ceremony. It happened at our church, big ceremony. And she invited us to go so that we could watch and be a part of this. Now, this girl, all I'd known was that she loved life, great passion for life, loved people. People were really warm to her. She was a a real sort of people magnet, you know, like the kind of person you just enjoy being around because she was fun and she was, you know, just had a great view on life. And we had no idea why life had got her to the point where she needed some intense help. And as we sat there, she got up and it was her turn to share her story. And as she got a microphone, I could not believe what I heard. She described being a drug addict. And finally, when it got to being on heroin, it completely devastated her life. That she ended up homeless. That she ended up in prostitution. That she ended up completely hopeless and suicidal and it was so far away from the girl I worked with. Like suicidal, drug addict, prostitution, oh my, that was so far from what I'd known because she'd met Jesus and had a life-changing encounter. I only knew her story on the other side. The opponents of Jesus, they got it all wrong. They didn't believe in him and were so angry at what he was saying about himself that they were prepared to lie and manipulate so the Romans would nail him to a cross. But they didn't casually dismiss him. To brush off the message of Jesus is to fail to see the power and significance of the gospel. But to believe the gospel and trust in the power of Jesus' death and resurrection is to completely transform and reorientate our entire lives both here and now and to have eternity secured with him in heaven. Jesus is the son of God, the word of God who became humanity and will forever be the greatest person the world could ever know perfect in conduct fully driven by the love of the father in total unity with the holy spirit the only person who is qualified to go to the cross because he was totally without sin he is fully god in character and nature he always was and always will be perfect and truthful all-powerful all-glorious the king of kings and yet the servant of all The one who would go to the cross willingly after telling his disciples they were no longer his servants, but his friends. The one who can promise eternal life and did the impossible so he could extend that invitation to you and me. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who can say, I am who I am. And all of this should be at the very front of our minds as we hear, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, truth, and the life. I am the vine. John eight fifty eight. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth before Abraham was even born, I am. Hallelujah. I am. I'm going to give a couple of questions for you. I hope you have a chance to take these down whether you need to get your phone out and type it in or whether you need to write it on a piece of something or write it on the neck of the person in front of you. A couple of questions for you to think about this week. We're going to use these in our small groups as we gather to talk about the sermon series, but maybe you want to have some one-on-one time or maybe just reflect on it yourself. The first thing is this. What's the right response to Jesus declaring himself, I am? What's the right response to that? We know his opponents got it wrong by trying to stone him, but what is the right response? What changes? How is that a life-changing thought? Second thing, what are the consequences of us thinking too little of Jesus? What are the consequences of us thinking too little of Jesus? And what you would say to that and what I would say to that may be different things, but those are questions I would put to you. One of the verses I shared earlier, as Jesus was having this ongoing argument with his opponents, It's uh, verse 36, so if the sun sets you free, you are truly free. That is part of the message of Jesus that is so important. We can never ever let go of that. True freedom, real freedom, real peace. It's only found in Jesus. Human history will teach us that people will try to find that peace anywhere. They will try and find that freedom anywhere you may have experienced in your own life. That pursuit to find freedom has come up short. You may have stories of people in your life, people that you love and people you care about. Their journey of trying to find freedom, a sense of peace is letting them down. My friends, it is only found in Jesus. It is life-changing news. I want to give anyone here, you may have never made that decision to follow Jesus. I would love to give you that opportunity today. So, I want to invite anyone here if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. It's just to give privacy to everyone around you and give us a chance to focus on what really matters right now. But if you would be honest enough today and you'd be brave enough to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following Jesus. I have never put my faith and my trust in Him. My life is not orientated around God. I'm not following Jesus, but I believe He's the Son of God. I believe He can set me free. I believe He died on the cross and three days later He rose again so I could know life. If you believe that, I'd love to pray for you and help you start this journey of following Jesus, the best decision any one of us could ever make. If that's you today, you might just put your hand in the air. I won't embarrass you, I'd just love to know who I'm praying for. Thank you, amen, thank you. Thank you, I see you. Wonderful, anyone else here today? I promise we won't embarrass you, but I'd love to know who we're praying for. Thank you, amen, wonderful. Wonderful, anybody else here? We're going to pray together in a moment. And when we do, I'd love to know who we're including in this prayer. Anyone else today? You're just saying, Tom, I'm ready to start. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Wonderful. Word of life. Can we please celebrate with those people making the best decision today? Wonderful. We're gonna pray a prayer, and I believe wholeheartedly that if you pray a prayer like this with faith, prayer like this will start to change a few things, that life starts to reorientate if you pray a prayer like this. So come on, let's pray together, everybody. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, can we celebrate with people one more time? Amen.